finally, at long last, after two months, we have arrived at the second paragraph of this chapter, <laughs> right? Uh, not sure, and I don't think they had paragraphs in the original Greek manuscripts, but the kind folks at Crossway Publishing has made it so that the ESV has paragraphs. We're at the second one of this chapter. And in the first paragraph, the past eight verses that we've been looking at, is Paul giving a general overview of two spiritual realities. There are those who walk in the flesh, and there are those who walk in the spirit. And Paul makes it abundantly clear that there are no confusing the two categories. There's no intermingling of these two spiritual realities in the, in the hearts and minds of every human being that has and ever will walk the face of the earth until Jesus comes back. Either one lives according to the flesh, that is, according to their sinful desires, or one lives according to the spirit, that is, the desires of God. Either one is in the flesh, and therefore they are hostile to God, and therefore they cannot please God, or one is in the spirit, and therefore they are at peace with God, and they are pleasing to him. Paul makes this distinction between those who are in the spirit and those who are in the flesh very clear, and so that there's no room for confusion. <coughs> and that's how he sets up how we're going into the second paragraph. <coughs> and so having gone over the overview of the first paragraph, let's take a step back before we get into the second paragraph and consider why Paul wrote this letter in the first place. Why did he write this letter to the Romans at all? This is written on Paul's, uh, probably written on Paul's third missionary journey, and he was in Corinth, and Corinth is, in, is a city in Greece, and Greece is to uh, the west of Jerusalem, the west of Israel, but it's to the east of Rome, okay? So it's kind of in the middle. And Paul has been going all over the Mediterranean, spreading the gospel, but Paul's eventual goal, or, or Paul's goal is to eventually spread the gospel to Spain. He wants to bring the gospel all the way to Western Europe. And so Rome, because it, what, how's it go? It goes Israel, oh, I guess you're looking this way. Okay, so it's, it's Israel, then it's Greece, then it's Rome, then it's Spain, right? And so Rome is kind of going to be like his mission's launch point, right? It's going to be here, it's going to be his mission's center because it's from Rome where he's going to gather, not only, uh, not only is it closer to Spain, but it's where he's going to gather supplies, resources, funding, um, and even partners to go with him to Spain, right? <coughs> so then, if Rome is going to be the center of his mission's launch point, then the church there needs to be solid and stable, right? This church needs to be grounded in the truth of the gospel. Because he needs the Roman church to be united around the core and central issues of the gospel. Or else they wouldn't support him 
to send that gospel to Western Europe, right? Why would they support him? Why would they partner with him to spread a gospel that they're not on board with 100%, right? And so he writes this letter to make sure that everyone's on the same page. <coughs> now, uh, we'll eventually get to Romans 8.18. But you can skip ahead to see what that verse says. But Romans 8, verse 18, suggests that this church, this Roman church that he's writing to, is going through some troubles. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of troubles they are. Paul doesn't list them out uh, as he does in 1 Corinthians. Like in 1 Corinthians, we know exactly what the church is going through. Like we know like a dude is sleeping with his stepmother, and we know that people are suing each other, and it's just a whole mess over there, right? In Romans, he's not so specific. So we don't know what they're going through. We just know that they are going through something. But if history tells us anything, uh, and if just the whole testimony of Scripture tells us anything, we can make two pretty broad but pretty accurate guesses as to what they're going through. The first is the systemic and systematic persecution of the church. This Roman church, it's a new church, obviously, right? This this faith in the man-God, Jesus Christ, could only possibly have existed for, what, like 20, 30 years at this point. <coughs> and Rome, being the capital of the Roman Empire, uh, is also at the heart of Roman society, Roman culture, Roman government. And the Roman government, for a while, they were okay with the Jews, right? Roman, Rome is this polytheistic, just whatever you, yeah, you're, oh, you believe in that religion? Shh, shh, cool, we'll add it to our pantheon of gods and religions, right? The Jews were like the one exception to this. The Jews would not worship any other gods, but they paid their taxes. They didn't start any rebellions, at least no major ones until AD 70. And so they're like, all right, Jews, you're okay. But then this like new cult is showing up, right? And the emperor of Rome is like, what is this like? They're worshiping like this Crestus, Jesus Christ kind of guy. Uh, they can't, no. And so he's evicting all of these Christians from Rome because they are following this new cult religion, right? Uh, these guys, the Jews, they're okay, but this new like sect of Judaism, they're going too far. <coughs> and so <coughs> they're being persecuted by the government. Uh, but they're also being persecuted by the culture. Uh, you know, remember, Rome is this polytheistic society where every single aspect of life, they're very religious, very spiritual culture, but every single action, every single thing that you do has a god associated with it. It has some sort of idol, and by idol, I mean there's like a statue in the middle of the city that you can go and pray to and offer sacrifices to. Or it's like, all right, God, I want, um, I want to have more kids. You go to the fertility God, right? Uh, I, want to, I want my crops to grow. You go to the farm God or whatever, right? And so to be a Roman citizen is to acknowledge all of these different gods playing all these different roles in daily life. And along comes these Christians who say that there is one God, there is one Lord, his name is Jesus Christ. And they're like, look at these atheists. <laughs> look at these people denying all of these gods, denying the religion. And they're, look at these, like, um, they're just trying to whip up, like, dissent. 
they're, an, you know, they're anti-religion. These, these cr- new Christians, they're anti-Rome, anti-civility, anti-society. And so they're re- receiving persecution from the culture itself. All right, so that's the first thing they're going through, systemic and system- systematic persecution. Second is, are tensions between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, right? In Rome, you know, it's... Uh, Jesus was a Jew, and so the Roman church would have started off as a Jewish church. But Rome being the, literally the capital of the world at this point, uh, eventually a lot more Gentiles are coming into this church. And if you read the rest of the book of Romans, it suggests that there are more Gentiles than Jews in this church. And what are, what are the differences between Jews and Gentiles? Well, the Jewish Christians are still observing the Mosaic laws, rituals, and customs, right? They're still chopping off the peepees of the little boys and they're practicing circumcision, right? They're still fasting on the major holidays. Um, <coughs> they're going through ritual cleaning before eating. So they're, do- they're doing all of that, right? Because they're, they're, they're Jewish. But then comes these Gentile Christians. They don't do any of that. They, they don't subscribe to any of the Mosaic law, especially the ritualistic ones. And so these two groups of people are clashing with one another, right? Um, and so <clears throat> they're receiving persecution from external forces, but they're also, there's also tension from internal forces. And so a couple of questions arise from these particular situations, right? In the face of external persecution, the main question that they're probably asking is, are we even going to make it? Are we even going to survive as a church? Right now, the persecution doesn't seem so bad, but we know eventually, especially with the guy, you know, Nero, things are going to get pretty bad for the Christians uh, throughout the various persecutions in history, especially in the Roman Empire, right? Are we even going to make it? Is our church going to make it? Is our faith going to be able to stand up to these external forces? But in the midst of internal tension, they're asking a little kind of more theological questions, right? What is the role of the Mosaic law? What is the role of obedience? What, is the, what, what are the things I need to obey? If, if I'm saved by grace, why obey at all? And perhaps these questions are a little familiar to us as we are doing our best to live out and walk out this Christian life in our present day and age, in our present culture. Right? In the face of a pluralistic culture where every view is right, every view is worthy of attention, will our commitment to biblical truth, will it stand firm? Will it survive? Right? In the midst of divisions in our church, in, the, in our churches, right? what are the essential elements of our saving gospel? What does it mean to be a Christian? How important is it to follow X, Y, and Z? These are the questions that were asked by the Roman church back then, and these are questions that we're still asking today. And as we enter into the second paragraph of Romans 8, let's examine how Paul begins to address these concerns, right? And we're only looking at verse 9. And so how he addresses it in verse 9 is not exhaustive. It's not all the answers, but he does... He starts to answer these questions, starts to get at the heart of these questions by laying out three fundamental realities of the Christian believer. 
So three fundamental realities of the Christian believer, which are going to be our three points today. The first, the Christian is in the spirit. Christian is in the spirit. Second, the Christian is indwelt by the spirit. Christian is indwelt by the spirit. And third, the Christian belongs to Christ. And so it's by laying out these three fundamental truths that Paul begins to answer the questions of how do we address these external factors and internal factors as a church. So the first, the Christian is in the spirit. Or another way to say it, the Christian walks according to the spirit. This is what we've been reading the past eight or so weeks, has it not? The first paragraph, all, it's all about what it looks like for someone to walk according to the flesh or according to the spirit. And how does verse 9 begin? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. This, this letter is not written as some sort, it's not trying to convince people who are not Christians already to become Christians. This letter is written to the church. And in a way, this is meant to be an assuring thing to them. Hey, there is a certain pattern that those who are in the flesh are going to follow. And there's a certain pattern that those who are in the spirit are going to follow. And you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. And here, in, he's answering the question, what separates the Christian from the non-Christian? And it's very simply the way in which you live and the way in which you walk. That's very simple. That's, Paul doesn't really see it any other way, right? The way in which you walk is going to separate you from those who walk in a different way. You are either going to walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. And what does the first eight verses tell us? Those who walk in the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Their thoughts, their desires, their longings, the orientation of their life is towards the things of the spirit, towards the things of God, towards the things of life. Those who are in the spirit defer to and obey the law of God. <coughs> Obedience to God's law is fundamental to, to walking and being in the spirit. And ultimately, those who walk according to the spirit are pleasing to God in both their thoughts and their actions. Right? So the Christian walks according to the spirit. Then Paul gives this sort of caveat to that. And if you're familiar at all with coding, I guess, uh, this is one of those, I guess it's grammar, it's just basic grammar. I don't, know why, I don't know why I brought coding into this, but it's an if-then statement, right? It's an if-then statement. Because the first point is this, the Christian is in the spirit, and then Paul says, if the Christian is indwelt by the spirit, right? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, Paul says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. He could have said, if the Spirit of God is in you. And that would have been a nice little parallelism, right? Because we are in the Spirit, because the Spirit is in us. But he doesn't say that. What he says is this. If, in, oh, I'm hungry. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, right? This is the verb oikeo, okay, contract verb, um, which, is co which comes from the noun oikos, 
And if you're a connoisseur of Greek yogurt, you know oikos, right? Oikos means home, right? It, it's, it's, it, generally, it means house, but it's, it's kind of got that familial connotation to it, right? It's not a house, it's a home. I don't know. Um, it's home, it's family. The Spirit of God is not simply in you, and it's not simply living in you, it's dwelling in you. It's making his home in you. He's making all that is familiar. He's making all that is familial. He's making all that is intimate and close. He's making that in you. What would that look like? How does that affect? Why, why does that matter in the sense of the Christian is in the spirit? Why, do, why does it matter then that the, the spirit is in the, in the Christian and not simply in the Christian, but dwelling in the Christian? <coughs> it's because your home will look like or it will resemble who lives in it. Our home, me and Esther, right? Our home looked a lot different before Debbie started to dwell in it, right? If you come, if, I mean, no one's coming to our house today because it's canceled, but if you came to our home, you would immediately know that it's not simply two adults who are living there. How would you know this? Well, it's because everything is everywhere. <laughs> Okay, it's because when you go to the bathroom, there's a distinct, faint smell of doo-doo because you look down and you see the di diaper container next to the toilet. Uh, you see all the toys scattered around and maybe things that aren't even supposed to be toys that are just kind of there, right? You see a lot of different colors, bright colors, right? You see the diapers and you see the crib. <coughs> Who lives in the home? Who dwells in the home? Their dwelling is going to affect what that home looks like. And you have to be, you have to understand that this is, what Paul is saying here is an if-then statement. It is not in order, it's not in order that statement. Okay, let me, let me say that again. He's saying, if the Spirit dwells in you, then you will walk according to the Spirit. What he is not saying is, if you want the, uh, what he's not saying is, we walk according to the Spirit so that the Spirit may dwell in us. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. What Paul is saying is that if the Spirit dwells in you, you will walk according to the Spirit. You will live in the Spirit. What he is not saying is if we walk according to the Spirit, if we live in the Spirit, then the Spirit will live in us. What's the point that Paul is subtly but very clearly trying to make here? He's saying, yes, Jewish Christians, obedience is very important. Obedience is critical. 
but that's but obedience is not how you get to walking in the spirit it's not how you get to a spirit-led life how do we get to a spirit-led life a spirit-led life is preceded by a spirit-filled life it is only when you are filled with the holy spirit that you can have a life that is led by the Holy Spirit. We can do all that we want to do in terms of obedience, in terms of holiness, in terms of moral, upstanding living. But if we are not first filled with the Holy Spirit, then we're not walking according to the Spirit. We're walking according to the flesh. But if the Spirit of God dwells in you, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you, it's just the natural or perhaps supernatural consequence that you will walk according to the Spirit. That the pattern and the general orientation and the trend of your life will be towards the things that please God. It will be towards the things that makes God smile. It, it will be away from the sins that make God very, very upset and angry. And of course, I use the word pattern, I use the word trend, I use the word orientation, because some of us may doubt, I, I believe that Christ has died for me, and I believe that he has been raised from the dead, and yet, there are these sins that I keep going back to. There are these, there's this anger that I can't seem to let go of. There's lust in my heart. There is pride in my heart. And as much as I want to get away from it, I can't seem to escape its grasp. And yet, I would encourage you that one, the fact that you're thinking these things is a sign of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. The sign that you desire, uh, the, the fact that you desire to kill the sin in your life, even if it seems hard or even impossible, the fact that you want to kill that sin in your life is a sign of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. But secondly, this is a pattern. It's a walk. It's a trend. It's an orientation. And we are walking towards God. And even though there might still be a closeness to the sin that we're trying to get away from, we are, we're making distance with every day, with every passing moment that we walk in the spirit, we're losing ground on the sins of our past, maybe even the sins that you're dealing with. We're, we're, we're moving away from the pattern of sin in our life and we're moving towards the all-satisfying glory of God. So, the Christian is in the spirit only because the spirit dwells in the Christian. And finally, the Christian belongs to Christ. So point number one, uh, the Christian is in the spirit. Number two, the Christian is indwelt by the spirit. And point number three is the Christian belongs to Christ. The Christian belongs to Christ. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so if you take the inverse of that, if you do have the spirit of Christ, then you do belong to him. 
Now, I know in our present day and age, and rightfully so, it's a little uh, faux pas to bring in ownership language, especially when it comes to human beings, right? Especially in this country with our um, very troubled past dealing with slavery, um, women's rights, right? Um, yet at the same time, we shouldn't shy away from the biblical ownership language that is at play here, right? Uh, just because, anyway, um, so there's ownership language, and the Christian belongs to Christ. And Paul's use of the word belong seems to be like a one-off in this context. You look through the rest of Romans 8, you don't really see another reference to belonging, right? And it's almost as if Paul is taking for granted the reality that if you are in the Spirit, you belong to Christ. He, it, it, he doesn't really expand on that point because it seems to him to be so obvious that he only needs to mention it once, right? If you're in the Spirit, you, obviously you belong to Christ. And <clears throat> there's really only one other example where Paul uses dwelling language in the context of ownership language, right? This oikeo, this oikos. He uses that kind of language in the context of ownership language, and that's 1 Corinthians 6.19. And 1 Corinthians 6.19 through 20 says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So in 1 Corinthians 6, we see these, um, these two actions of the Spirit of God. That one, it purchases us. It owns us like property. Uh, but the second is that we are indwelt. That God is dwelling with us. Like a tabernacle, like a temple like a home. And that's very important that we understand these two distinct realities. They're not distinct. They're, they're, they're two realities that make up one reality, that we are purchased, that we are owned, and that we are indwelt. Because think about, think about um, I don't know, me, think about buying a house. Think about buying a house, right? There's a difference, right, between a real estate investor and like, uh, a couple with like uh, you know small children like me right uh, right what are the what are the goals with these two separate sets of people right for the real estate investor you know it's about investing in a house market's hot right now hot 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 got to compete with the Chinese so we got to buy up all this property and so later on we can flip it for a profit right and that's their only concern. And because for them, it's, just a, it's simply a piece of investment, they might not even, they might not even see the house. And that's, a lot of that is happening if you, you know, for you kids who want to get into real estate investing. Some people don't even look at the house. Like they just see it on, the, on, the, on Redfin or Zillow, and they're like, oh, give me that, right? Gentrifying neighborhood, baby, let's get it, right? How is that different from a person looking, maybe a new family looking for a house? They're not, they're not just looking for a house. They're looking for a home, right? They're looking for a home. They're looking for a place that they are going to be living in. And therefore, what the house looks like, 
very important to them. What the house, what the house smells like, that's important to them. How the kitchen is laid out. Is there any leaking going on? So, is the roof falling apart? Do I need to put in $17,000 to fix this roof? Okay. Uh, these questions are very important to a homeowner, right? To someone who's going to live in the home, right? God did not simply purchase us. He didn't say, all right, Jesus died for your sins. You're on your own. He purchased us at the cost of his own son, Jesus Christ. Not only, not only to be forgiven our, of our sins, but he has come to make a home in us. And he's, his desire for us is to look at us and say, I love this home, but it needs a new roof. I love this home, but it needs to change its desires. I love this man, and I love this woman. They are, he is my son. She is my daughter. And I gave my, gave my son's, my Jesus Christ's blood to purchase this man, to purchase this woman, to have this son and to have this daughter. But I can't. I cannot possibly leave them as they are. They can be, they can look like me. They can look like the temple, the home that I can make it look like. God did not simply purchase us and leave us alone. He has sent his spirit to dwell in us so that we, the temple of his spirit, would look more and more like him. And so when we talk about walking in the Spirit, when we talk about obedience, morality, righteousness, these things can seem so foreign to us. And they can seem like, um, they can seem like just religious talk, people barking orders at us, right? Until we realize the fact that we are not simply called to obey, but we are called to be the, the temple the home of the Spirit of God. Our faith, our church, it will survive the onslaught of external forces, perhaps persecution or even mild inconveniences, <coughs> because the Spirit dwells in us. We walk according to the Spirit, not because we're so good at walking, but because the Spirit is so good at dwelling in us. And because the Spirit dwells within us and because we belong to Christ, the orientation, the trend, the trajectory of our lives is towards God in all of his satisfying beauty and majesty. And as a consequence, we are moving away from the patterns of sin that once dwelt in us, but no longer. Why? Because now the Spirit of God dwells in us. Now the Spirit of God dwells in us and directs us to walk in life, directs us to walk in the Spirit, directs us to walk towards God. Would it be that we recognize the Spirit's work in us? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you did not simply give us a list of commands 
for us to follow, and if we don't follow, we'll just die so that we could be just like Adam. But Lord, you have called us to be like Christ. And we are, we are called to be like Christ because Christ has died for us. And because we have received a grace unfathomable, because it is the spirit that first dwells in us that we can now walk confidently in the spirit of life. We can obey your law and we can learn to love your word. Not because we're so good at loving, not because we're so good at following and walking in your footsteps, but Lord, because the spirit of Christ is in us. And the spirit is making wholesale changes. And maybe sometimes not wholesale changes, maybe little changes. But Lord, would we, would we be encouraged? Would we not be dismayed at, maybe not be dismayed that sometimes these sins keep popping up in our lives? May we not be discouraged that our walk with you doesn't seem to be going as quickly or as smoothly as it should be? Because Lord, you are in us. You're making your dwelling, your habitation, your housing, your home in us. Would we trust in you? Would we trust in the work that you're doing? And would we encourage one another to not look at the outside, not look at the works that we're doing necessarily to put our trust in, but Lord, would we put our trust in and would we urge one another to put our trust in the spirit of life, the spirit of Christ that dwells in me. In Jesus' name I pray.